Hello everyone, and welcome to Grimshaw Spotlight, where we shed a light on the latest IR research at the LSE and beyond. I'm your host, Carol Aduko, and today we are joined by a professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University, where he researches racial politics, post-colonial theory, and much more. And this is the great Robert Shilliam. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today. Thanks so much. And, and I'm in Baltimore. DC is down yeah. the road, but, but, um, but Hopkins Political Science is in Baltimore. Fair enough, fair enough. I wanted uh, to invite you today to talk to you a little bit about your your latest research and kind of what you've been doing, um, especially around, uh, like we were saying, racial politics, a lot about uh, the history of IR and uh, decolonizing thought as well. You've written quite extensively about all these topics. Um, I want to start off with kind of discussing a little bit about um, your book that you published in 2021, which is called Decolonizing Politics, and it is a guide for undergraduate students. Uh, where you discuss a lot the importance of decolonizing knowledge. Um, and you you do it in a very interesting way where you kind of, uh, your methodology is sort of around a kind of a contrapuntal reading. So basically taking uh, thinkers that are more at the margins of the discipline and bringing them to the forefront. And you go a little bit further than that by going to and engaging them in a, in a dialogue with some of the canonical thinkers in IR and even beyond going into, you know, Western um, political theory and also philosophy more broadly. So I was wondering, first of all, why you chose this approach and also how does this help us to challenge and to decolonize knowledge and think beyond the claims that we often assume as kind of universal or innate? Mm, that's a very good question, man. Um, you know, there's a tendency for people to think that when you do um all the decolonizing stuff that um you know you're on another planet and um it's totally weird and wonderful and um you can go and visit it but you can always come back to to um where you're comfortable with right of course some people live on that other weird and wonderful planet but just bracket that for a second um it, it the book is about decolonizing politics meaning the study of politics right i i didn't want to um exoticize um and distance the um the big issues which are brought up by all this kind of decolonizing work um i didn't want to exoticize them from the um kind of standard education that a lot of students get so what I wanted to do was to, to say that um, this material is actually intrinsic to the material that students are usually taught, mm. um, but it might not be taught as being intrinsic. And if that's the case, then what, what students are not getting is a critical awareness of the deep and abiding racial and colonial logics which structure the, the, the field. That's why I started with Aristotle, because, um, you know, a lot of intro to political science starts with Aristotle. Um, Aristotle is usually seen as the theorist of the good life um, and, that, and the relationship between the citizen and the polis. Um, he's seen as the font of a European tradition of thought. Of course, Aristotle was, what was um, like most of the Greeks, thought that the Europeans were barbarians, so he wasn't European. Mm. Um, and what's more, Aristotle was trying to think about the relationship between the, the, the citizen and the polis in a context of multiple inter-imperial um, warfare. Uh, and, the, and, and, and so the, the usual idea we have about the good life, the citizen and the polis, doesn't include 
um, other kind of characters on the stage, like immigrants, women, slaves, uh, and um, and other forces such as um, violence, uh, hierarchy, um, empire. And so, you know, the first part of the book is to say, if you do want to start with Aristotle, then you then all the materials which usually are exoticized away from the, the, the heart of the field, actually are right there. Now, does that mean that Aristotle's, uh, you know, Aristotle's understanding of the ethnos is the same as the understanding of race, which starts to form around the 1500s? Probably not, um, but that's not the point. The point is um, that if we're talking about major claims about the logics, the concepts and the categories which constitute the field, then these logics, uh, then these imperial, colonial, and and racial logics are actually um, there in the at, at the heart of the field. And so each of the other chapters kind of takes you know a, a major theorist, whether that be Immanuel Kant or um, uh, Lucien Pye in comparative, or um, mm-hmm. Martin White in international relations, and then kind of puts them up like you said. First of all, looks at the the imperial and racial context in which they're writing, then tries to figure out what the logics of those contexts which get imbued in their thought, and then um, brings an alternative um, which looks at the same issues but through different logics or logics which seek to be different to the kind of racial colonial hierarchies and segregations. So yeah, that's the kind of so it's basically to say you know let's let's not go to another planet. Let's start where we are. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and and especially I'm very fascinated by some of the work that you've done in in thinking about the beginning of of IR as well, and and the work that you've done with uh, thinking about, uh, for example, Morgenthau and the way that he approached IR and and the importance that actually race had uh, in in his. Uh, thinking and his writings as well. You know, you talked about this on a podcast actually quite recently, uh, the Undiplomatic podcast, which I I recommend all of our listeners to go and and listen to. It was a great episode. Could you kind of maybe talk a little bit about how race is is central or in your opinion is is, and has been central to IR as a discipline and how the approach to race in the discipline has changed over time? Yeah, no, I mean, so there's a a lot of people who have done work to recovered the kind of imperial origins of the of the field whether it be in the US or in South Africa or in Britain um, and now people are doing it in Australia as well so basically all the Anglo the Anglo world except for India so um, certainly up until Second World War IR was a applied studies uh, war and peace applied to imperial administration mm-hmm. And of course, applied to imperial administration means that the um, you know the mitigation of war and the suing for peace um, all has a racial racialized logic, right? Um, and in many ways, that kind of formative history of the field actually was somewhat unknown, not entirely, but somewhat unknown to a lot of the um, scholars who kind of restarted the study of race in IR in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, um, which is very interesting. And 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 I'll, hopefully I'll get to the reason why it's interesting. You know, when they when they um, did their studies, most, not all, but most of them saw a field which had absolutely nothing to say about empire and race. And in fact, 
apparently had never had anything to say about empire and race. So they went outside of the field, uh, as you would logically do, and, um, you know, retrieve various different histories, social theories, political theories, um, uh, um, sometimes even ethnographies um, and political economies of empire and race, and basically said, you know, this is utterly missing in the field. If we're going to actually look at the, the, you know, the most salient, substantive application, if you like, of hierarchy in the world, it's mm -hmm. empire and racial logics behind empire. So we have to go outside of the field to retrieve that. Then after or as and after they were doing, they'd started doing that. Another bunch of scholars went to the, you know, beginning of the, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century and said, oh, shit, look. You know, actually, the whole field yeah. began like this. Wow. So then it feels as if, you know, after the Second World War, all of that, you know, especially with the Shoah, you know, all this talk about eugenics and race and empire was kind of, you know, outlawed. And so um, people stopped talking about race. And then it took a bunch of scholars in the kind of late 80s, early 90s to resurrect that. But that's actually not true either. And people like Morgenthau, even John Hertz, the guy who coined the phrase security dilemma. John Hertz, in fact, had his first proper job at Howard, Howard University, which is the historically black university in Washington, D.C. And he formulated his theory of, of, of um, security dilemma there in close relationship with people like Ralph Bunch and others who were talking about the enemy, you know, the, 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 the outgroup within, so to speak, which was black people in the US with Jim Crow. So in fact, John Hertz um, fashioned one of the key um, conceptual framings of IR, the security dilemma, uh, by bringing together a theory of Nazism and a theory of Jim Crow. So um, Morgan Thalvin, you know, he, by the, he writes one book, um, on kind of Eisenhower and, and American um, foreign policy. And then the next book he writes is, um, he frames it in terms of the, the challenge that the black freedom struggle poses to the Cold War struggle. Um, and that book is called The Purpose of American Politics. And it's probably his first, his first most serious attempt to kind of turn his German theory of realism into an American theory of realism. And that theory of realism is predicated upon the long and unfinished history of abolition. And he relates that to the question of the Cold War and the fact that um, the struggle in the Cold War is not a quantitative struggle over military mm. um, capabilities, but it's actually far more deeply a qualitative struggle over the kinds of freedom that newly independent countries might want to veer towards, either the US or the USSR. And of course, in that respect, the race record in the US is quite... Um, deleterious to, to, to US interests. So basically, even people like Morgenthau and Hertz, mainstays of the field, are actually very much embedded in thinking about race and international politics. And I would say it's probably only in the mid-70s that um, that kind of dominance falls apart. And you've got a very, and you know, I might be wrong about this, but my suspicion is you've got like 10 or 15 years where there is an utter dropping in the field of anything to do with empire and race. And in fact, that work goes into, then travels into black studies and other studies rather than IR. And then 10 or 15 years later, you get the bunch of scholars who are now our senior scholars 
who tried to resurrect it without knowing any of this history, which tells you then that the erasure of considerations of race and empire in IR was very recent and incredibly mm. concentrated. It yeah. can't have been, it, so therefore it can't have been, it must have been intentional. And I hate to say that. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. I just mean it was so concentrated, there must have been a reason for doing it. Yeah. I think that's that's really fascinating. And uh, but for now, I want to talk. I want to touch on something that you you just brought up is talking about abolition and 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 the continuation of the abolition abolitionist struggle. Uh, that you you talked about it in the context of the Cold War, but you've also uh, kind of done quite a bit of extensive research in terms of the Rastafari movement. I'm curious about your thoughts on how the Rastafari call for reparations. Kind of extend that extend beyond the individual to become kind of a global justice issue and what forms of reparative justice do you see uh, as necessary for addressing historical injustices or how do Rastafari intellectuals see these yeah um the oftentimes people take um cultures of resistance and creative survival oftentimes they take them in the ways in which they at face value in the ways in which they spread around the world. Um, and they always spread around the world in a kind of, with a, a double meaning. On the one hand, it's a, it's a meaning which is individualized. So it's about um, feeling good about yourself. It's about having good relations with other people. Um, you know, it's usually something about love, <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> sure. Um, but then the double meaning is always that that is collectivized and historicized. Mm. So, for example, the very famous phrase that that Bob Marley popularized, "One love," um, you know, is initially a phrase which is "one black love," mm. right? And "one black love" doesn't mean not one love, but it's very similar to saying, if you think that all lives matter, then you must as a predicate, believe that all black lives matter. You know, mm. the two are not antithetical, but you can't just have all lives matter in this context, in this structure, without, without the predicate that black lives matter. Um, so, um, so these kind of things become popularized, which is how they should be. Um, but the deeper, um, the, the, the deeper struggles, collective struggles, which they're part of become oftentimes eviscerated from them. And in doing so, the, 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 the knowledge tradition, tra traditions which they're embedded in also become invisibilized. So that's the kind of thing that I'm, 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 tr I'm trying to do um, with, with Rastafari as a, as, a, as a resource to thinking about global politics, global justice, political economy, reparations. Mm. Um, you mentioned reparations. I think there's a lot of mystique about that. If you wanted, uh, world of global justice where um, everybody was accorded the same safety net, everybody was accorded the same opportunities, everybody was accorded the same protections. What you would actually have to do is undertake a set of reparations which were targeted at specific groups. Mm. Do you get what I mean? So reparations is very mystified but in actual fact if we want universal security if we want mm. collective security if we want international mm. morality right then we need reparations it's, it's, it's incredibly simple 
and and it's not even you know again it's not about going to mars and finding something weird and wonderful on mars even the basic understandings that we might have about what social security is um what a safety net is what welfare what welfare might be um what opportunity and advancement might be and if we have the same un basic understanding of that when it comes to a universality of application that's that that requires reparation for <laughs> the, you know, yeah. the afterlives of slavery, the afterlives of imperial rule, of all the wars ongoing still today. Do you get what I mean? Sure. It's yeah. and, and so again, you know, one love was initially one black love. One black love is not is not um, is not partial. It's what it's what's yeah. required for one love. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, I think. And you were uh, you were uh, talking a little bit about, you know, in the you you talk more generally, obviously, of um, the ideas of Rastafara and where they come from and kind of how they're engaged with on a more um, on a more broad level. And I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about your about specifically political economy and how that is also issues of reparations and things like that, how you've been thinking about them, especially in light of your uh, upcoming book I know you haven't written it yet it's coming up in in 2024 so you know um it's not fully ready yet or fully fleshed out but I'm curious about what you've been researching on and uh, mm. whatever you can tell me about about that well I guess part of it is uh, um is is somewhat kind of specific and it's about the way in which um it's the way in which we usually teach political economy and divide up the political or make a chronology out of the political economy tradition one of the ways in which we oftentimes do it is to say something like this there was the classical political economists um those guys you know adam ferguson um smith um um james stewart you know all these scots um were mainly talking about conjectural history in other words they were saying you know Probably humanity developed in stages, um, and probably there was a primitive stage of hunter gathering. Then there was a agricultural stage. Then there was a blah blah blah, and then there was a commercial stage, which is the stage we're in now. And you know, can we still have a a um, ethical society um, which which allows people to pursue their virtues in a commercial society? Um, which is based on individual interests or something like that right mm. um, and then they say you know someone like Marx comes along and then Marx is a, a break and Marx is a break because he's saying you know screw the virtues um, and screw the speculation I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a uh, materialist um, uh, a theory of um, of capital um, which explains to you, um, you know, what its fundamental, the fundamental nature of its relationship is, and that's capital and labor, that's exploitation, uh, it's, it, it, you know, and that's accumulation, right? I'm thinking that there's a different break, although break is probably the wrong word, um, which is about abolition. All the Scots were all abolitionists. Um, Adam Smith was an abolitionist. Um, all of them uh, were writing in an era um, where abolition um, was a major, major theme, if not the biggest theme um, in commercial society. 
um, certainly from the 1780s to the 1820s or 1830s. And um, Scotland was in no way separate or uh, distanced from that at all. Um, in fact, you know, they're all moral philosophers. So their question is, what is the, what is the just reward of labor? Um, and to ask what the just reward of labor is, they all have to deal with um, the fact that slavery um, doesn't just provide an unjust reward, but it actually um, destroys the relationalities which um, allow for virtue in the first place. That's basically patriarchy. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's basically what it is. So, you know, slaves can't, uh, enslaved men can't be good patriarchs, enslaved women can't be good, um, good mothers or children. And so the whole um, chain of um, being and uh, hierarchical being and order collapses and they worry that that is going to be the fate of the factories in England and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and in fact, when you look at Marx's writing, he inherits that. Mm. And even if he's writing in England after the, you know, 1830, whenever it was, 1833, then 1838, um, um, Emancipation Acts, um, he's writing um, during a, um, probably the, one of the most consequential civil wars, wars over slavery, which is the American Civil War. Um, and in fact, he adds a whole chapter in his first volume of Capital on the working day. Um, in in relation to and in reference to the, the struggle over um, abolition. Uh, and in fact, it's probably the thing which introduces into that first volume the actual history of class struggle. Struggle, not just capital accumulation. And Marx's theories and concepts are kind of haunted by an, by the prospect that abolition is unfinished and that that unfinishedness um, makes us question the uh, epistemological distinctions between free and unfree labor. Uh, and there's a way of reading Marx to say that actually capital is not defined. Capital relation is not, cannot be so easily defined by the separation of violence from the point of um, of of, um, of production and labour, or the um, dis distancing and separation of the labourer from the means of production, or from or from uh, hierarchical relations, or from labour contracts. Right now, actually, there's something going un underneath that, which is much more um, violent and coercive. Um, the fact that um, absolute surplus value does not disappear in capital. Um, in fact, absolute surplus value is part of relative surplus value, which means you work people more um, just as much as you try to extract more out of them. And many of his examples here are about slavery in the, in the Americas at the time. If you fast forward, then what that means is that our conception of a modern economy, um, an economy based on contract, based on consensus insofar as it's based on contract and exchange of equals, um, insofar as we think about um, technology as the big driver of, of accumulation because that intensifies the relative um, uh, extraction of surplus instead of prolonging and, uh, um, the, the working day and putting people in miserable conditions and making them last for longer. All of that starts to collapse. And when you look around the world, you see that actually 
probably the most amount of capital was produced by coercive, violent, unsafe, inequitous um, labour relations, not by contract, not by not by formal freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of world that we live in. Um, how might we have a political economy which better recognises that? Mm. To do that, we might have to rethink how we understand classical political economy right. and the unfinished prospect of abolition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So that's that's going to be kind of the, the topics that you're going to be talking about it's, in your it's a new chapter. book. <laughs> it's a chapter only. Lovely. Chapter well, that sounds, that sounds incredible. Um, it's the chapter is... in my mind. Fair enough. <laughs> well, you've got to start somewhere. You know that. So, you're, you're, you doing, know? You're, doing, you're doing your your you're doing your essays at the moment. <laughs> That's, you know right. That That's where it all starts. Essay in the mind and an essay on paper. <laughs> that never finishes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Listen, that's where it has to start. So, you know, uh, that's, it's all good. As long as it's in your mind, it's, that's, it, that's where it needs to be for now. Uh, fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll keep the conversation going after a short break. You talked a lot about how, um, how it's limiting to think of only kind of the political economy is coming f- and com- getting to only you know the trade and and mm-hmm. uh, and how it's important to also incorporate other ideas about our political economy mm-hmm. and and how labor and coerced labor is fundamentally a part of it, right? Um, I and and that also has to do with the idea of uh, incorporating other worldviews and ha- and other perspectives that are not simply the European perspective. Obviously, Marx was writing very much, uh, like you were saying, thinking also of of slave labor uh, outside mm. of Europe, but also a lot of it had to do with uh, with the conditions of European working people, mm-hmm. uh, the, the European work class, which was also very much being exploited. And um, and I'm curious about you know how you've talked about this in an article that you wrote, which called the Atlantic as a vector of uneven and combined development back in 2009. And you say that, quote, we cannot adequately explain modern world development through a narrative that starts with the rise of capitalism, nation and class within England or Europe. So you talk uh, here, you kind of focus a little bit more on the geographical aspect of, um, of a limited geography of of analysis uh so can you elaborate a little bit on how this geography kind of limits the narrative of political economy that centers the rise of capitalism and class within europe as opposed to including other other perspectives well of course you know all these guys in the in the mid to late 1700s and smith all of them were reading travelogues um they so the, the you know the basic premise is that Europe was never not connected to the rest of the world, and oftentimes the rest of the world was more dynamic than Europe. So it's a category error basically to 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 um, posit Europe as a hermetically sealed um, and um, there's a religious word for when you and em, uh, yeah, which which emanates out of itself, mm. out of its own genius, right, um, or out of its own horrors as well. Um, so you know, a lot of a lot of um, 
narratives of, for example, the, 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 the Shoah are narratives which are, you know, the horror emanates out of Europe. But what we know now is that Hitler was looking to, you know, colonial projects and, and how other, other imperial powers, including the US, was dealing with its indigenous people and with black people and all that, right? So, and, you know, least of all to mention the, the, the first major genocide of the 21st century, which was in Namibia. So all of that helps us to understand, explain the horrors or the developments in Europe better. Mm. Um, so I guess that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing to say is it also is to do with what time period you start. There is a, a comforting myth in a lot of humanities and social sciences, which is that at some point, um, knowledge production became secular. And when it became secular, it became universal. And as it became universal, it meant that you could actually do it, you could actually be self-reflective and critical in, in your knowledge production and your teaching and your learning. And of course, that's what we need for good citizens. None of that is wrong in, in the latter part of it. The premise is that everything started with secularism. And the, the best of the tradition is, is when it faces down God um and um and starts to think you know and and substitute the philosopher for the for the priest um that though is also kind of dangerous um because what it does and what it does right now is it posits a purified um tradition of thought and of 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 um of culture uh which is that that standard which all other cultures have to aspire to and so that is behind ideas about uh things to do with tolerance um tolerance is always a power relationship who tolerates whom what that also does is maybe make us uh uh um stop us from plumbing the depths of where we are at the moment. Um, and it's not an origin story, but it is a story about what we think is distinct or not about Europe. Um, maybe one of the first times that the question of whether a commercial relationship undermined virtue was not in the Scots um, in the 1700s, but possibly amongst the Portuguese in the um, 13 and 1400s when they, um, uh, as part of a, a holy war, a crusade, um, you know, started started having wars in Iberia against the Muslims there and then went down the coast of Northwest Africa. Um, and there's a point where the um, capture of Moors um, as part of a holy war, which then is part of virtue, starts to shift into a capture of Moors for commercial enrichment. And there are all these philosophers and theologians at the time who start to question whether that is a transformation which is fundamentally um, destructive of, of Portuguese society. So that's in like kind of 1400s. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? That's about yeah. the Crusades and the reconquest of Iberia. And it's about imperial expansion. And it's about questions of whether when is it that Moors turn into Blacker Moors, turn into heathens, um, turn into non-humans, right? Um, 
so I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not talking about origin stories. I'm talking about what are the conceits we take with us when we think that Europe is a space which emanates out of itself and is distinct, sui generis. As Samuel Huntington says, it's not the clash of civilizations, which is the big thing. For him, it's not. The big thing for him is the, the chapter that comes after and the paper that comes after, which is Europe, unique, not universal. That's, that's the chapter now. Yeah. Right. That's where we are right now um, when we talk about, you know, the legacies of recent populism, a, a return to white nationalism, civilizational defense rather than, you know, make, liberal making the world in one's image. It's, it's as dangerous, if not more, because <laughs> um, this is about yeah. purification. Yeah. I would want to ask you about this for hours, but I don't want to um, go on for too, too long. I want to I want to kind of end um, on all the things that we've been discussing. And a lot of the work that you've done is obviously trying to incorporate um, race and and uh, also imperial colonial relationships into the thing into how we think about IR and and making them as crucial. Um, and we discussed it a little bit before, but um, I, I found it fascinating that you've been you've talked before about the importance of of putting IR at the set, sorry putting race at the center of of the study of IR is not just an issue of morality, but also it's an issue of having a more a better analytical using it as a better analytical tool because kind of taking away the history of colonialism and and race race racial relationships. Um, that have characterized so much of our history muddles our our mm. understanding of of IR and and doesn't allow us to have very useful or good analytical tools. And so mm. instead of thinking of race as purely a, a, a moral issue, also using it as a as a helpful analytical tool. Can you explain mm. uh, or talk a little bit about that and mm. how you think about that? Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm writing a paper with um, a guy called um, Richard Mass. Um, and and um, Dick's po basic point is, um, let's do our empirics, that's fine, let's observe. Uh, one doesn't even have to read against the grain of the archive. It's very clear that the determinants um, and the logics of going to war in the First World War and the Second World War were heavily raced, heavily. One doesn't need to do theoretical or psychoanalytic backflips. It's really clear. His argument is, which are the two historical phenomena which IR theorists of all different persuasions and all different methods use to figure out the causes of war and peace? It's the First World War and the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, I I, it's just so simple. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you it, you're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You would think. Yeah. Rich has been too simple. Surely <laughs> <laughs> there's something else. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Well, I think that's a great note to, uh, to end it on. Uh, I want to throw at you one last question. Um, I want to know what your recommendation would be as the favorite, your favorite latest piece of IR research could be an article, a book, or anything that you are reading right now, uh, that you are loving right now uh, for our listeners. I couldn't really do that, but what I could say is I could think about where you are, 
the city that you're in. I could think about the scholars, which I know have got books on the way, which I think are really exciting. Jenna Marshall at King's has got a book coming out on what they call Creolite and um, international development. Um, it's going to be super, super cool. Um, Lisa Tilly's got a book coming out on ecology, um, ecology, uh, race and coloniality. Neving Manchander's got a, a, a book coming out. Well, she's going to kill me, actually. It's an article, at least. Well, anyway, she's doing stuff on infrastructure. So is Sherry Blonsky. Um, so uh, I think that there's a lot of really important stuff at the moment in terms of, first, ecology, second, infrastructure, global geo geopolitics of infrastructure, and then thirdly, different ways in which we think about international organisation and global governance as intrinsically um, about race and coloniality, but also generated from the global south as well uh, in, compl in complex yeah. ways. So those, I think, are because I think all of them bear kind of witness to where we are in the present. You know, where we are in the world at the moment is that um, it's not the eclipse of anything, but it is the multiplication of different um, nodes of power, different centres of gravity, um, and that's going to be with us for some time. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great having you.